Revelation Without Fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. Well, for the sake of some who may have joined us, let me just take a minute and let's back up just a little bit and let's talk about, first of all, the title of this book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The word there in the Greek is the word apocalypsis, where we get our word apocalypse. And a lot of people think that means apocalypse, end time, end of the world, you know, bad stuff happening. We have an immediate negative connotation with that word, but that's because of what we've done with it. The word itself actually in the Greek simply means the unveiling of that which was previously hidden. So when John writes the book and he calls it the revelation of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is the unveiling of things you previously did not know about Jesus Christ. And that's the opening sentence. And I think that really represents the heart of the book. Despite anything, whether we look at things allegorically, whether we look at them as, as uh, futuristic events, however anyone chooses to look at this book, let me tell you, there, it's the Word of God. And there is information about your walk and who Christ is and who you are in him that we draw out of that book every time we open it. And so let's always remember that first and foremost, it is a revelation of Jesus to us. When we first started talking about the book, we talked about John there in exile, had been exiled by the emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos. While he's there, he has a vision. He sees the Lord. The Lord begins to speak to him. Then the Lord gives him letters to seven churches, and we went through those seven churches, and some have interpreted those churches as, as general letters to the body. Some have talked about them as being possibly uh, various ages of the church. There's all kinds of interpretations, but there were wonderful principles we were able to draw out of all of those letters to the churches. Then as we start getting into verse uh, chapter 4, chapters 4 through 19, where we're still uh, towards the latter part of it now, um, there are, depending on your view, and there's four major views, has a lot to do with how you interpret it. The preterists are a group who interpret it largely as all these events that are described here allegorically or literally are all things that happened pretty much in the first century. They pretty much describe the judgments or the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman armies, and that's how the preterists interpret it. Then there are the allegorical or poetic approach who tend to look at everything as this is all symbolic of things happening in, this, in the spirit. Then, of course, there is the historicist approach. And virtually every area of Christian history, there have been, every generation has looked at this book and said, oh, this means this, this means this, this means this, in light of what they were experiencing at that time. And we've talked about it on a number of occasions, openly and honestly, how how it, it's been, it's very easy to look at the events and say, oh, this is this. And sometimes we, when I've talked about them, it's almost comical because we think, well, it can't possibly mean that. But at the time, to those believers, they really did interpret it that way. And then there is the futurist view. And the futurist view, of course, is that pretty much all of Revelation 4 through 19 deals with a seven-year end-time period of time that, for lack of a better term, we call the Great Tribulation. Um, that name, of course, is biblical, but it means sometimes different things to different people, depending on how, how they view it. We've also talked about the very honest fact that, you know what, sometimes there's really good points in all of these. I mean, we look at, we look at some of the things that the preterists talk about. Look at the incredible how, how this prophecy was so fulfilled in the first century, and you go, wow, that, boy, that's compelling. But then we, we've seen how prophecy can be fulfilled 
and fulfilled again and fulfilled again. Because the Word of God is living and active. It's not static on a page. And the, the example, in fact, we'll get back to it again tonight. The, the, the classic one that I've given you is how, you know, Daniel the prophet talked about the abomination that causes desolation. And, and historians and everyone will tell you that was perfectly fulfilled between the Testaments when a guy named Antiochus uh, desecrated the altar there in Jerusalem and he, and he uh, uh, sacrificed a sow and tried to make the, the people of Israel uh, worship Zeus. And it was a horrible, very difficult time. And, and everyone knew that was the abomination that caused desolation. The prophecies were perfectly fulfilled, so incredibly fulfilled that some moderns have said, there's no way Daniel wrote that book because no one could be that accurate as a prophet, which is really kind of silly. But it's true. I mean, you'll, you'll, some, of your, some of your skeptics will say, well, it's incredibly accurate, clearly performed. It, it must have been written after the fact. Um, thank you very much, but that's how modern scholarship goes quite a bit of the time. But then, after knowing it had been fulfilled, we see Jesus say in Matthew, and we'll talk about it tonight a little bit, when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken by the prophet, Daniel. So Jesus, living after this event, is saying, you're going to see it again. So sometimes we see these things fulfilled. That does not mean that there's not also a future meaning. So while things can be, have been fulfilled multiple times in history, we also believe that there is future meaning for this book of Revelation, and we should draw it out and dig it out if we can to the best of our ability. Tonight, we're going to pick back up with chapter 16. We have seen uh, after the letters to the church, John began to have a series of visions. He saw seven seals opened, and every time one of the seals was opened, he had a vision. Then there were seven trumpets. And every time a trumpet sounded, he saw another vision. And now we're in a time in which he's seen these seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And we're up to uh, the sixth angel here in verse 12 of chapter 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, you may recall in chapter 9, there was a call from heaven to release four angels that had been bound up in the great river Euphrates. Um, it's impossible, as I shared then, to overstate the significance of the Euphrates River in world history. Of course, it's right there, the cradle of civilization. Even modern uh, archaeology will tell you that uh, most people believe that mankind originally developed there in the, what they call the Fertile Crescent and the land there in modern-day Iraq the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. The Euphrates has a tremendous, tremendous history in ancient world, uh, a tremendous history actually in the Bible. It's mentioned many times that the greatest height of Israel's power under Solomon, the extent of Israel's influence, the Scripture says, was from the sea to the river. And the river they're talking about isn't the Jordan. It's the Euphrates. It's, his influence extended well into what we call modern-day Iraq. The Romans considered the Euphrates River to be their great barrier on, in, the, in the east against invasion. In the Roman times, it was probably about 1,800 miles long and was anywhere between 1,200 yards and 300 yards wide, and it was a pretty formidable barrier to be crossed, and it was their secure bulwark against invasion from any eastern forces. Now, the sixth trumpet, interestingly, here we're dealing with the sixth bowl, the sixth trumpet was the one that drew attention to the river Euphrates and spoke of 200 million soldiers 
being prepared for battle. Remember that? And there was a lot of speculation about who is this 200 million soldiers. And, of course, up until our time, that would have been considered impossible. It would have had to have been spiritual or allegorical. But today, the nation of China, of course, their army is that large. And so because of that, a lot of people speculate that maybe this is China. But we certainly don't have any text that tells us that. It's just that, you know, do the math, and there's only one nation that's that big. So a lot of people consider it that. So to many people, this imagery is obvious because this river is now being prepared for crossing. If the river was dried up, then obviously massive armies from the east, nations like China, or for that matter, uh, over the years it's been speculated it could be India. It could be, you know, during World War II, people speculated it could be the armies of, of Japan. They could move westward with ease. Um, a lot of people today believe that is what will eventually happen during this great battle. There will be a migration of great armies from Asia across into the Middle East. Um, I will also say that the preterist view is that this was the armies of Vespasian, who at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 were camped in this area and crossed into the Holy Land and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So you understand why they believe that that's what this is. There wasn't 200 million of them. So either there's some sort of allegory or we're talking about a future event or, or, or this is a spiritual uh, picture we don't really know for sure. Some speculate that the reason that these armies from the east come westward is to either attack Israel, been a lot of uh, prophetic teaching on that, or perhaps to rebel against a European-based leader whom they think is the Antichrist. Ultimately, it appears that when they come west, uh, uh, westward for battle, they actually wind up in battle against the Lord, as we see. Verse 13, then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So out of the mouth of the dragon, the Antichrist and the false prophet emerge what he sees as frogs, but we already know they're actually demons, they're actually spirits, because John tells us what they are. Now, to John, who was, of course, a practicing Jew, a frog was an unclean, foul creature. He'd never been to the Felsmer Frog Leg Festival and figured out what we know about, about frogs. Um, of course, the, the ribbiting, uh, Chuck, front row, it's never, never good. Chuck said it's ribbiting. The Egyptians, of course, worshipped frogs, a frog goddess. Uh, but from a practical sense, it's pretty apparent what these spirits are. They have a specific function. They're there to lie. They're there to deceive. They are spirits that tell lies. And it's a really interesting story in 1 Kings 22. Um, it's a time when, uh, when the, uh, Jehoshaphat was visiting with King Ahab, and Ahab was wanting Jehoshaphat to go into a battle with him, and, and Jehoshaphat said, look, I, is there not a prophet of the Lord we can talk to about this? And there was a prophet named Micaiah who eventually came and was brought in, and at first he didn't want to really tell Jehoshaphat, I mean, uh, tell Ahab the truth. So he was kind of like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, fight. Yeah, it's great. It's all good. And then uh, at Ahab's insistence, he actually told him what he, really, what he really heard. And this is what he said. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting at his throne with all the host of heaven around him on his right and left. And the Lord said, 
it will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there. One suggested this and another that. And finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means? The Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. You know, that may seem like a little strange passage there, but let me just draw one fairly obvious principle out of that. There are things called lying spirits. Spirits can take on a personality and have be effective at deception in the mouths of humans. But there's a spirit that's behind that. You know, this is a dramatic example, but I will tell you, we can see lying spirits at work in our culture right now. Lying spirits have a tendency to call evil good and good evil. You know, if you really back up a little bit, sometimes as believers, if you see things from a biblical worldview, you look at what's going on in our culture and you go, how in the world can people believe this? How in the world can they celebrate, I'll pick on them right now, in the state of New York for making abortion something that can happen, you know, up to three months after the baby's born? I mean, three, not three months, three, three minutes after the baby's born. Well, there's not a whole lot of difference now, is there? Infanticide is infanticide. We look at we go, why, why would this be something you would celebrate? Well, of course, it's, it's, it's freedom. It's women's rights. It's the, this, the argument has been turned to really being a matter of life and death, to being, and those who oppose it are considered oppressive, right? So what's happened? Evil has become good, and good has become evil. The whole argument has been framed. Now, you and I could sit here tonight, and you could think of 10 other examples of what's going on in culture. I will tell you that I see it happening, unfortunately, in the church. I see a lot of young believers who no longer even want to discuss the subject of abortion because they feel like that that's long been lost. There's others we could talk about. We could, we could talk about sexual orientation and all that kind of thing. Why, why are people hearing these messages and being enticed? Because there are lying spirits at work. We're not simply in a natural, it doesn't make sense to the natural mind. Logic doesn't apply. People disengage their logic to receive this and believe that evil has become good. And it's, it's what the enemy said in the beginning. In the garden, what did Satan say to Eve? Hath God said? Has God really said this? The enemy has from the beginning tried to cause God's people to question what God has really said. I see arguments today uh, that say things like, well, does the Bible really teach against that, or is that a subject of controversy? You know, and for 2,000 years, everybody knew what the Bible taught on it. And suddenly people are questioning it. Lying spirits. These things, I believe, are being systematically planned at the gates of hell. And the most vulnerable believers, by the way, are those that are not connected to other believers or in fellowship. They are isolated and on their own. Now I'm preaching. That's why Jesus said in Matthew that unless the days be shortened, even the very elect would be deceived. Well, here in Revelation 16, these spirits are sent forth into the earth, and they perform signs. Now, these spirits may be working through a host of people. Who knows? I don't know. 
but we see them coming from three of them, and they are doing signs and wonders. And here is the second place in Revelation that we hear signs and wonders being used by demonic forces as tools of deception. Just to point out that signs and wonders do not always affirm truth. Okay? I love signs and wonders. I want to see more signs and wonders in our midst. But signs and wonders do not affirm truth. Because signs and wonders, I mean, not always. That's why Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit, not by their signs and their wonders. So the purpose of this specific deception, going along with signs and wonders, this specific deception that's happening in the midst of global suffering, we've seen these all the suffering that's going on with these uh, bowls of judgment being poured out. The purpose of the lie is to gather nations into a battle, to stir them up so they will take arms. There is a massive global deception to cause everybody to want to take up arms and gather in a specific place. They will be made to feel an offense. They will be made to feel an injustice. They will be made to feel, we got to fix this. We have to rally to the cause. And what's motivating them to feel that way is lying spirits. They're being manipulated. Now, who else is fighting in this battle? If all of the armies of the earth are under the authority of the beast, who else is there to fight? Well, that's why a lot of people believe that the battle is actually arrayed against the Lord and his second coming. Now, it doesn't spell out that way in the text of Revelation, let's be honest. But that is why it is being interpreted that way. Classically, many futures have taught, and in our own uh, uh, faith, denominational background teaches, okay, that what you're, what you're eventually going to see is the armies of the earth physically taking part in a battle against the Lord. Where we get that from is, is basically this idea that if all of these armies are arrayed, you know, it's kind of like what Psalm 2 says, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, of course, we know spiritually that's true. We know that, you know, it's like all the systems of the world are arrayed against the kingdom. Now, that's normal. We know that. It exists now. It's not a future event. It's a now event. But the idea here is this eventually begins to manifest through the, through the moments of history until we are embroiled in this moment when it becomes a literal physical battle. Now, John uses the expression here, the great day of God Almighty, as the time when this happens, God's day. We know who the winner is. It's God's day. It's not the day of man. It's not the great day of the Antichrist. It's not the great day of the dragon. It's the great day of the Lord God Almighty. That's important to listen to and to know because, again, this is called Revelation without fear. We're talking a lot about creepy stuff here tonight. Verse 15, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now, in your Bible, if you have a red-letter edition, you'll actually see these are red letters. This is, we believe, Jesus himself speaking. He's saying, I'm coming like a thief. In other words, I'm coming in an unexpected way. Now, we've heard those words before when Jesus was teaching his disciples. In fact, let's look at this expression and some of those words in light of Revelation in Matthew 24, where it says this, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately, and they said, When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? 
And Jesus answered, watch that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am in the Christ. I am the Christ and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of birth pangs. You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, here it is, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down and take anything out of his house. Let no one go to the field back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive in the, even the elect, if it were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you he's out in the desert, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner room, don't believe it. For his lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will, the, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all nations of the earth will mourn. He'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they'll gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I'll tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I'm going to cut short there. I was going to continue reading through verse 51, but that's okay. I want to point out just a couple things in this passage. If ever there was a single passage of Scripture that shows you how prophecies can be fulfilled and fulfilled again, Jesus just did it. Already talked about the part. But, you know, so much of that generation of believers who heard this, they paid attention to that message, okay, because when the armies surrounded Jerusalem, when the armies of Vespasian, led by Titus, surrounded Jerusalem, they fled. The Christians left the city, and the Christians survived things. Many of them fled, as we, uh, as we uh, know from the, the great historian Eusebius, they fled to a city called Pella. Um, but the, the point is that, that they heeded that word. And yet, Based upon what we just read, there's no way that was completely and totally and 100% filled because that wasn't the end. There's been a lot of wars and rumors of wars since then. In fact, there's been wars and rumors of wars ever since. And yet we know that at some point there's coming a fulfillment of it that there won't be another generation except the end is fulfilled. Does this make sense? 
This is why, you know, when you look at prophecy, you, some people want to see prediction, fulfillment, prediction, fulfillment, prediction, fulfillment. Prophecy is not that simple, y'all. It's living and active. And if we can get that, I think we can stop thinking, pardon me, in just linear thought when we think of these things and realize that it, it has life. You know, God speaks the word and it controls the stuff of history. But one thing we have to read, realize when we read this and when we read Revelation is this. Things will not always continue as they have. Time is not forever. The earth is not forever. And that is why in every generation, including this one, we need to be connected to Jesus and busy about his business. That is our response. And so in this picture, we see that spirits are going out to deceive the nations and gather them in. And in verse 16, it says this, that they gathered the kings together to a place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is a great battle at this place called, in the Hebrew, Har Megiddo. And Megiddo is actually a very real place, but he's been there. I've been there a couple of times. How many of you have ever been there? It's one of those stops everybody makes when you go, when you go to Israel. Um, it, there's actually a, a very large valley, and there's a tell or a hill. This, this picture was actually taken from that spot. And, and there's, a, there's a city mound, and, and you can see a large valley that's uh, running through there. It, it, Megiddo has already known a lot of blood. It is a region that has been frequently associated with a lot of decisive battles. In the Scripture, uh, Deborah uh, defeated Sisera there. Gideon defeated the Midianites. Pharaoh Necho defeated Josiah. That's in 2 Kings. There's others. There's been many, many battles throughout the century. In, in the record of history, over 200 battles have been fought in that valley. From 1468 with Pharaoh Tutmosis III to 1917 with Lord Allenby and the British. Some expositors see this entire narrative of Revelation 16 as symbolic of Satan's battles with the church, and they see this as spiritual battles taking place in unseen realm. And the truth is, we know that this, the, the natural world actually reflects the spiritual. And so it's not untrue to say that there's spiritual aspects of it. But far more expositors do believe that this will be a literal battle someday. Most evangelicals nowadays see this as eventually being a literal battle taking place in this very ancient spot where so much blood has been shed through history. There are very few places that historicists and futurists agree, but both agree that the seventh and final bowl is a future event. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. Every mountain could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of the hail because the plague was so terrible. The voice said, it is done, and declaring the end. And notice that it's interesting, the, the, the angel poured out his, his uh, bowl on the air. It's kind of like a sense of the, the final judgment of the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians refers to, to Satan. Uh, there was a great earthquake. 
so great. It was greater than any had occurred since, since man. And um, some have pointed out where Hebrews 12, 26 says, you know, yet not only will I shake the earth but once more, but also heaven. Um, here, the great city we see literally splits into three parts. A lot of people see this as Jerusalem splitting. Other people see this as Rome splitting. I'll explain why more. Um, some people see this purely as spiritual. This is spiritual Babylon. Giant hailstones fall, weighing up to a, a hundred pounds, and men respond, screaming, blasphemy, raging against the Lord. Hail is often seen as a, a judgment in Scripture, from certainly Egypt against Canaanites, against apostate Israel and Isaiah, other examples. Um, in each of these instances, the hail that fell was was real hail. It was it, it was literally hail that fell. So whether it's symbolic or real, it certainly has been real in past judgments. Um, but now John's vision is getting ready to shift, and he not only sees an earthly city under natural disasters, but he now he sees a spiritual ministry as we come to chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits upon many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit to a desert, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was clothed with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Both the dragon and the beast had seven heads and ten horns, so this was clearly symbolic in some way, shape, or form of Satan's power. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries and the title was written on her forehead. Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who had given testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was now is not, and will come out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see this beast, because he once was, was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. No kidding. <laughs> the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is... The other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They'll make war against the lamb. There we have it again. But the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his chosen, faithful, and called followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They'll bring her to ruin, leave her naked. They'll eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beasts their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. 
the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. I took the time to read this whole passage. There are things that we know because the angel is kind enough to explain it to us. And then there are things that have been the subject of speculation throughout history. Um, Throughout Scripture, there are occasions when the Lord uses the visual image of an immoral woman as a metaphor. Consider how often he referred to Israel as an unfaithful wife. Consider Hosea the prophet, who had probably the worst calling of any man in Scripture, because God called this man to marry a woman who would be serially unfaithful to him, who would actually sell herself or be sold into prostitution. He would never know if his children were his. I mean, the whole thing that Hosea lived through to be a prophetic sign of what God was suffering from a people who he had called to be faithful to him. These are, you know, these are images that we see multiple, multiple, multiple times in Scripture. Um, Ezekiel is positively graphic when he describes the heartache that the Lord has experienced. I mean, you read how he says it, and you go, wow, I can't believe that's in the Bible. But he's expressing, you know, God's feelings are real feelings. And God's love for you is not theoretical or theological. He's passionate about his people. He loves you. That tells us he's capable of being hurt. It tells you his love is real. It's not theoretical. He doesn't love you because he has to, because he made you. Not like that. And it, we see those very graphic visual images because God's saying, look, this matters to me. And his passion for Israel was real, and, and he, he called that nation. And so many times we see Israel, and for that matter, the people of God, in an imagery as unfaithful when they have been. Now, her name here is Mystery Babylon. I, I, I love the fact that her name is not just Babylon, but Mystery Babylon. So this isn't literal Babylon. This is a spiritual representation, and the text tells us as such. And it calls her the, the source of all idolatry, the mother of all idolatry, the mother of abominations, the mother of spiritual harlotries. So she is symbolic. We're not simply talking about the ancient civil city of Babylon, which, by the way, is where a lot of this stuff was birthed, right, if you recall. So she is a city, but then again, so are we. We are the, the, the people of God or the city of God, right? One of the great foundations of Western theology was written by a man named St. Augustine. When the, a lot of the early church, when, when Constantine conquered um, the, 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 the eastern portion of the, of the Roman Empire, and he united it and he claimed his victory was given to him by the Christian God. Some of you know your history. You know what I'm talking about. And suddenly the empire went from being anti-Christian to being officially Christian. In some ways, it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to the church. In some ways, it was one of the worst things that ever happened to the church because suddenly now Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. And for a number of years, as the church began to integrate society into the church in a big way, there almost became this mindset. In fact, you can read it in a lot of ancient Christian writings. They believed they were living in what we call the millennial reign. They believed like the kingdom of God has come to earth Wow, it's now the church has taken over the world. Whoop, the Holy Roman Empire is here. They really began to, to believe that. And, and in many ways, God, keep in mind, these guys had come out of great persecution. They believed that the kingdom had come. In some ways, it was one of the worst things that ever happened because a lot of evangelism stopped, and we just began to incorporate people into the church. But when Rome was sacked, 
the Goths, the Vandals, and you know the, the times that Rome was attacked. Um, I think Jerome, who, who uh, was translating the scriptures into the, the Latin at the time, he's sitting in a cave in Bethlehem, and when he gets the news that Rome has been conquered, it was unthinkable. How could Rome be conquered? How could it happen? And he said, I am undone. The city which has taken the world is taken. It rocked his theology because he had an eschatology, end-time worldview that was this, we're here now. It's happening. And he thought, how, how, could, how could the Christian civilization be taken by, by pagans? And so he began to think about it. And he began to say, you know what? This kingdom of God thing, it's not a, it's not a physical city. It's bigger than that. It's a spiritual city. And see, he wrote his classic work, Civitas Dei, which is called The City of God. How many of you ever read Augustine's City of God? Anybody in the room ever read? The buddy's nodding. I have often joked about that book because I had a very lengthy stay one time in an airport in Korea, and I was looking for something to read. There's not a lot to read in that airport in Korea. And there on a shelf at the bookstore, I saw a copy of, of City of God. And so, oh, I hadn't read that in a long time, so I'm sitting there reading it. And it's in that book that, Augustine begins to give us a lot of the analogies. Like, Augustine's a guy who came up with this analogy. There's a God-shaped hole inside of you that can only be filled with God, right? A lot of things that we take for granted and colloquialisms in the church. And I'm reading him, and I burst out laughing because I'm going, you know who Augustine was like? He's like Buddy. <laughs> Buddy comes up with all these analogies. always has these analogies. People go, oh, okay, I got that. Makes sense. He had a way of explaining things to people in that day and time that people just went, ah, got it. Well, Augustine writes this incredible work that now we like consider this great historical document, but he's telling us, look, the church, the city of God is the church, y'all. It's not, it's not a city called Rome. It's bigger than that. And it was kind of a revolutionary thought at the time, but it was one that set the church kind of back in the right direction that we really needed to go. I took the time to tell all of that, to basically say that when we look at Mystery Babylon, let's realize it's a city, but it's more than a city. Babylon is mentioned 287 times in Scripture, more than any city except Jerusalem. It is always associated with idolatry, blasphemy, the persecution of, of God's people. In John's day, nobody epitomized Babylon more than Rome because it was in an antagonism and, and, and opposition to the Christian faith, Okay. Um, if you think about it, even today, we think of cities representing forces in the world. Let me give you an example. Uh, many, many years ago, back about 1989, I, I worked for a guy named Pat Robertson. How many of you know who Pat is, right? I don't know how you feel about Pat, but I will tell you that Pat accomplished a lot of things, especially in that day and time and in the Christian world. And he was kind of a, a, a leader in some areas of media, and I was working on, with, on a project with him. Never spent a lot of time with him. But this particular occasion, I was, I was, several of us were on a retreat with Pat, and I was able to engage him in an interesting conversation, and I've remembered it my whole life. And I remember one thing Pat said. He said, America has multiple capitals. He said, Washington, D.C. is the power capital. The, the, the power, the hunger for power emanates from D.C. He says, and then the economic capital of the world is New York. He said, that's where the money, the financial stuff flows from. And he said, and you know where the values capital is? Hollywood. He said, we are exporting that value all over the world. And I listen to the guy, I'm going, eh, it makes sense. 
and I, I've, I've thought about it a lot, but I said that to say, see how these cities are symbolic of something bigger than just the city. Remember that imagery, because in John's day, Rome was Babylon in very many ways. It, 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 it represented, Babylon represents the world system. It's, it's a satanic mockery of God's kingdom. I could go into the history a little bit. I won't take the time tonight, but, you know, Babylon was founded by a guy named Nimrod. He was actually mentioned in Scripture. He was called a, a Cush-fathered Nimrod, who was the first on earth to be a, a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, except the way it's worded in the English is not really right. It, it, it really would say a mighty hunter facing God in defiance. He was kind of defiant against the Lord. While the Bible doesn't tell us this a lot of uh, historically, and certainly the ancient rabbis sort of taught that it was Nimrod's idea to build the Tower of Babel. He was sort of the leader of that. And it was always kind of seen as, a, as rebellious. And then there was, there was some of the, the, the first false religions of earth came out of that. Uh, it, it, it's at the very core of false religion, okay? Um, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with this, this, this false religion. Religious Babylon intoxicates kings and intoxicates people. Karl Marx was partly right. He said religion was the opiate of the masses. Actually, empty religion, dead worldly religion is the opium of the masses. And she is drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This woman not only persecutes, she revels in it. This system revels in the persecution of the godly. False religions have always been the persecutor of the true, haven't they? And false religions don't just have names like, you know, Islam. Many times the false religion that has persecuted the church claims to be Christianity. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about the spirit of the Antichrist, which masquerades and has many times come out. John said, you know, that they came out from us. In other words, they purported to be Jesus followers. And then he says this, uh, talks about the seven heads being seven mountains, the angel said. This is, one of the, again, one of the associations with two cities that we know were built on seven hills. Jerusalem is one, and the other is Rome. And so traditionally, a lot of Christians, especially historicists, have interpreted Mystery Babylon to be the Vatican, to be the Catholic Church. Okay, that is why it is so commonly, if you read a lot of your, your, your commentators, especially uh, in the years after uh, Martin Luther, you'll find so many of these who, who, who believe absolutely, and many people still today believe that the Vatican, that the Catholic faith, that the uh, Roman Catholic faith, that is, is, is this mystery Babylon. He says this, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Boy, that's one of the more difficult passages here. Um. <clears throat> Some explain this to be seven kings of Roman emperors. This is how the preterists see it, but it's really kind of hard. You have to really, it's like putting a round peg into a square hole to make that fit in terms of real history. Um, more likely, it is a reference to what I think most people believe today, five empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, and Greece. These were the five empires that existed before John's day, and then there was one that was. That would have been the Roman Empire. And then there is one that is to come. And a lot of people take this to believe that it would be a, a new empire, a new global superpower. Um, some have speculated that it's a revived Roman empire uh, of some sort, to, a future to come. 
because he talks about 10 kings who have received no kingdom as of yet. And uh, this is where a lot of the teaching came forward, it especially began to spring forth in the 70s about a 10-nation confederacy. So when the, uh, the European common market, which preceded the European Union, was reaching its 10th nation, everybody was like, oh, there it is. It's the 10 nations. But then it got a little bigger, and there went another theory. But there's a lot of different theories, and some of these we've discussed. Some believe it's a Muslim caliphate, um, a, a, con- a confederacy of nations. True answer, we don't know. I mean, I don't. Y'all may be smarter than me on this stuff, but I. we will know when we need to know. How about that? Yeah. They are all of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Whatever these nations are, their actions are clear. They join with the Antichrist. They give him their allegiance. They lend him their armies and ultimately wind up here in this great battle in the sixth and the seventh bowls. And God uses them then to turn on Mystery Babylon, whether it's a literal city or whether it's a religion. So here's one of the ways that this has been purported. Someday, the, you know, the people who believe it's the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church will be in league with the Antichrist, and then the Antichrist will turn and destroy them. Some people believe it's actually the Jewish faith. Some people are very anti-Semitic in their thinking, in my humble view and that then they'll turn on the Jewish faith and, and attack. I don't really know. There's a lot of theories, but again, they are theories. But what we do realize is that it's very clear that the ten-horned animal here is the beast, here again, so we, we understand that. And ultimately, the beast is responsible for turning the nations on its ally, Mystery Babylon. And it results in a great judgment upon this world system be it manifest in a literal city or be it manifest throughout the earth just as a religious system. The woman you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Again, by uh, John's day, people thought that was Rome, and it may, in fact, be. Others people think because it splits, it it could also be Jerusalem. I think that, um, if I can close with this tonight, too often, expositors have tried to simply see this and decide whether they're talking about Jerusalem or talking about Rome. I think most Christians go through life and they don't really care one way or the other because they're just trying to figure out how to love their wife and love their kids, pay their tithes, and get up the next morning and do their job. But there has been a lot of discussion throughout the years, the millennia, whether this is Jerusalem and this is Rome because it's, the speculation has to do with the seven hills, Right? You know, people say Mystery Babylon is a city and Vatican is a city. And, you know, um, some people have said the Rome woman is clothed in purple and red. And they point out that, of course, red is what the cardinals wear. And the bishops uh, and uh, non-cardinal bishops and archbishops wear purple. And they'll use that as an example. Um, but, but before we point a finger... Let's remember that there's one thing for sure, and that this Babylon is prevalent, and it is a mystery. And it seems to me that throughout the ages, there have been always been a faithful church and an unfaithful church. There have those that have been chaste and pure and dedicated to the Lord, and then there has been a religious system. And most of the time, the biggest persecutor of the true faithful followers of God has been the religious system that gets entrenched and people's hearts have been turned cold, and they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And whether it's a Protestant denomination that's denying the truth 
and deciding that the Bible is no longer our authority and persecuting those in their midst that say, hey, wait, why, why are we abandoning the Bible? Okay, which is going on. Why is that any different than the things that the Catholic faith has done in which they have taken the word of, of, of the Pope or the word of somebody over the word of God. The point is, is that our religious systems and there are the true church. It's almost like, you know, we see two cities. There's a city, which is the city of God, which is the true people who are called of God, who are chaste, who are faithful or loyal, who stand up in the midst of the persecution, who stay faithful unto the end. And then we see the religious system that wants, we're spiritual too. We're the people of God too. But in fact, they become the stumbling block and the enemy of the true faith. Hmm. So there's two women. There's the mystery of Babylon, and then there's the bride who has made herself ready. Let us be glad and rejoice for the marriage of the Lamb has come. We're going to get to that soon enough. That hour is coming when the attention will no longer be on the woman of Babylon, but in the weeks, next couple of weeks, we shift attention and we start talking about this bride of Christ. And we hear the voice that says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.